Welcome to the Navigating Disruption Podcast. I'm your host, Shaquille Barmel. I'm the CEO of Ocean Blue Strategic and partner with The Summit Group. I'm a coach, consultant, and speaker, and I help leaders, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals make an impact through improved performance. In this podcast, I share insights and interviews with interesting leaders to define practical lessons that you can use to make an impact in the face of uncertainty. We are proud to be brought to you by The Summit Group. We help companies increase revenue and deepen customer relationships by moving from sales excellence to authentic business relevance through engaging learning experiences. You just never know when you're going to find people that you so closely align with. I was first introduced to David Pyle, Senior Vice President at Cox Automotive, by my colleague at the Summit Group. David was on an executive panel I was moderating at the Global Strategic Account Management Association Conference in 2020. His responses to my questions about leadership and customer collaboration were so insightful and reflective that I made a mental note to book some one-on-one time with him. And you get to listen to that conversation here. We chat about the power of self-reflection, the ability of leaders to hold opposites, the shifts in the movement industry, and how leaders can navigate this time of disruption. Enjoy the conversation. David, how are you today? Shaquille, I'm doing great. Privilege to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Oh, I'm really, really happy you agreed to have this conversation. We booked it a, a while ago, so I've been waiting for this date to come. David, before we get into talking a little bit about who you are and what you do, most of the people I talk to, there's some kind of connection that I've had either earlier in my life or at some point. And we just got to know each other a little bit recently. And you were on a panel that I was facilitating at a conference for the Strategic Account Management Association. I don't know when that was now, probably November last year, I think. It seems like a year ago, but probably (laughs) right. We were talking about co-creating value with customers. And David, the way that conversation went I was just so intrigued and drawn into some of the comments you shared about leadership that I knew at that moment that I wanted to have a deeper conversation with you. So thank you for arranging to make your time available for this. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to be with you and it's always good to reflect on your journey and everybody has a story to share and I'm really excited to share mine. Awesome. Well, tell me a bit about what you're doing now. What's your role? What the organization is? So the company I work for now is called Cox Automotive, and we're a a division of Cox Enterprises, which uh, historically has been a company that is centered around media. And it's interesting because foundationally and culturally, media is very disruptive. And so that's Mm -hmm. put into our organization some particular acumen around disruption that I found to be incredibly helpful these days. Our largest division these days is Cox Communications, which Mm -hmm. is a communications telecom company centered across many markets in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then automotive is the one international part of Cox Enterprises. We operate domestically in the U.S. We operate in Canada. We have partnerships in Brazil and China and Southeast Asia, Australia, U.K., Europe, India, across the globe. It's really an interesting organization to be a part of right now because automotive uh, is transforming and regressing in some ways back to the original use case, which is how do we help people get around? So mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. My um, specific role in the company is head of enterprise sales for our, our retail segment and our mobility division, which 
which is mm. a brand new division that's focused on some of the new form opportunities for transportation in the future around the globe. Everything mm -hmm. from new kinds of fleets to aerial to autonomous vehicles and a lot of wow. other cool stuff. Wow. So, but I, but I always say relative to what my role is that what I really do and what I've always found myself doing in anything that I've done is that I take things from chaos to structure. <laughs> it doesn't matter in any of the 17 roles that I've had at Cox Automotive over the past 22 years. I've always been taking something from chaos to structure. Interesting. Interesting. That resonates with me. You know, when I was in my early 20s and I wrote my first cover letter, I wrote this line in that says, I take joy in moving from chaos and ambiguity to clarity. I was probably 23 when I wrote that sentence into my cover letter, and I was pretty proud of it. So I kept using that phrase. And then finally, when I got to business school, the career counselor there looked at my cover letter and scratched it out. And you never <laughs> want to say you joy in chaos. That's not really a good message to send. So I took it out. But the truth is, I do enjoy coming to situations that are slightly disorganized, unclear, uncertain, and then working with people to bring clarity. So that's why I'm drawn to you. I didn't know that about you, but clearly there's higher forces at work when I get drawn to people who have the similar kind of view and perspective. Tell me a little bit more about your perspective on moving from chaos to structure. Well, I think that probably both of us, whether it's intentional or some sort of serendipity, we ended up focusing on chaos because there is a lot of it in our world and mm -hmm. it's happening faster and faster. Mm -hmm. And I think what I most become concerned about is the effect that it has on people. Because at the end of the day, we're all still people trying to do a good job, trying to help other people, trying to capitalize on opportunities and mm -hmm. trying to make the world a better place. But when I look at chaos and uncertainty and the things that we call VUCA, you know, yeah. volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Those seem to be things that are descending on our world at a, an increasingly more rapid pace. Mm -hmm. And as I've worked with executives, one of the byproducts of the role that I have is my organization, we decided that we'd create a program to help train executives on how to deal with these things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not so much a leadership organization or course, because there are many of those. And I don't know that that we would have any sort of a corner on the market or insights that would be revolutionary in terms of just pure leadership. But relative to disruption, it does require some different things. It requires a level of peace and humility. Sometimes it's rare for executives to find. So interesting. So we're talking about words like chaos, peace, and humility, and those words kind of coexisting in a single conversation. That's kind of cool. That's kind of cool, David. So I think we've landed somewhere in the zone of a name of our episode that's going to be called the word chaos has got to be in our it has to be there there's no question <laughs> so so let's go back in time I, I don't know if you've listened to some of my other episodes but i'm a really big believer that who we are and how we show up today in our leadership roles comes from experiences early in life good, bad, or in different experiences, but they influence us. So if I can go back and you pick the time in your life, childhood, adolescence, early career, is there a memory, an experience, a person, a defining moment that you feel has kind of stuck with you over the years and somehow influences your leadership and the way you show up? 
Yeah, there's one core story that I'd love to share, but you jogged my memory though, when you were sharing about your cover letter and what you put in there. And it's such a fascinating story because I do agree that there are glimpses of our future selves that we have when we're young, that sometimes we don't even appreciate at the time. And I'll never forget in my high school yearbook, maybe yours was like this too, you would put a quote, Mm -hmm. a very simple quote about something. And I didn't know myself to save myself at that point when I was 18 years old. But the quote that I put in my yearbook was actually very appropriate. It was, the greatest joy in life is to do what others say cannot be done. Mm. And if there's anything that encapsulates probably motivation for me, it's a combination of growth and transcendency. And we may talk about this later. There's multiple pathways to motivation that I've learned. And I think it's a fascinating journey for the leader to explore how they motivate people. But for me, growth and transcendency are really important. So doing something that that people say cannot be done has always been something pretty motivating for me. And my wife calls it She calls it the big red button. She's like, don't Mm. push the big red button because whatever it'll take, David will go try to find that thing and make it happen. (laughs) So I love that story. But I'd say the one defining moment for me, I can narrow down and I can even envision this in my mind right now, Shaquille. It was in the spring of 2003 Mm. and I had a, a rare opportunity to go through a kind of mentoring course with a gentleman who was really remarkably successful professionally, financially. And he got to a place in his early 50s where he realized that what it took to be successful in those things was not about the professional outcomes, but it was about the personal costs and all those things. And so he agreed to mentor a group of, there were eight of us, he called people that you'd consider like a heat seeking missile. Somebody who's just Mm. focused on their career. And he said, I want to help you understand how to do this in a way that doesn't destroy your family and your life and those around Mm. you. And he asked me a question and I had contemplated this question for a while. And here's what it was. He said, if you died today, what's the greatest unfinished business of your life? Mm. And I took that question to heart because I really wanted to understand not the surface level of what that was, but deep inside me, what was the thing that really was driving me? And on this day in the spring of 2003, I remember pulling out of my driveway, went down to the end of my neighborhood and I turned left and I was driving on the road. That was the point where the real answer hit me. And it wasn't to grow old with my wife. Mm. It wasn't to walk my daughter down the aisle one day. It wasn't to see my sons grow up and become fathers. It wasn't anything related to my family or my community or the people I loved. It was essentially a professional ambition. Mm. And I was embarrassed really about what it was. And if I was going to summarize in effect what that motivation was, that unfinished business, it was to get myself promoted. Mm. And although that's not a bad ambition. And I certainly, nobody has the ability to judge what that primary motivation was. It wasn't the one that I wanted to share. And as Mm. I thought about the people that worked for me at the time, I thought that's not a very compelling leadership story to tell people. My motivation when I wake up every every day is to get myself promoted. Mm. And what that led to is really an exploration for how I can change this and what can I do differently. Mm. And it led to a couple of outcomes. One 
is I was reading the book Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren and the very first page, the very first sentence, he says, it's not about you. And so I really took that to heart. In fact, in my office, I actually have a uh, plaque that is in here right now. And it says, just to remind me, it says, David, it's not about you. Mm. Because I'm always aware that there's something bigger going on than just how I show up. Can I pause that pause sure. for a second? Because that really, really struck me that not that long ago, what, 2003, 17, 18 years ago, you were quite content in your life and career with the ambition focused on career and promotion right. and advancement. And look, that's probably the case for most of us as we kind of live our life. And I certainly was there at that point. But it was a powerful question asked by a coach, a mentor that made you think deeply about what really mattered to you. And that struck me because I find that thoughtful, powerful questions are sometimes the greatest gift we can ever be given. And I don't know what the rest of your story is, but to me, it, it just kind of reinforces that moment that what a gift we can give to others by asking them thoughtful, deep questions that make them pause and think. And what a great gift it is for us to receive those questions from other people and just to savor those moments in life when we get those questions and not dismiss them. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just felt like I wanted to mark that moment in this conversation. Well, I would imagine that as you know, your listeners reflect upon many of the leaders you've had on this, many mm-hmm. of the, the people that you've had in here, a lot of the stories go back to uh, a point where there was some self-reflection Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, that self-reflection, I think, generally has to happen in some sort of community with people you trust. Mm-hmm. You, know, you probably, true. in your own story, would, would reflect back on those kind of things, too. I, I would yeah, guess. yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But back to you. So sorry to interrupt your story. Do you remember where you were going with this? I do. So yeah. um, it's funny. I was talking to some young people because mentoring now has become something that I do very much in a formal way in my own life. And I was talking to some folks. And I was sharing them, sharing with them my leadership mantra, and I was sharing with them how simple it is. The first part of it is, it's not all about you. The second part of it is maybe even harder to do. And I learned this part of it reading, I was reading a book by Dr. Larry Crabb, and he said something that really kind of hit me between the eyes. This is a case where he did, Larry Crabb didn't ask me a question, but he was making a point. And the point I turned into a question when I asked myself, is this you? (laughs) And what he said was interesting. He said, powerless men and women spend their lives controlling some outcome and then deceiving themselves into thinking that it matters. Hmm. And I realized that there are a lot of times when there was something I wanted to happen. And if I couldn't make that thing happen, I would just make it a little bit smaller until I could make it happen. Hmm. And what the obsession became for me was not about the accomplishing of the thing. It was about the achieving the outcome, whatever it was. And I realized that anytime that I did that, I was focusing more and more on myself and less and less on leveraging the people around me and the team around me Mm -hmm. and the people around me to help me be successful. So my simple leadership mantra is two things. It's not about me and it's not all up to me. And I have found that those are incredibly difficult for me to do. It is very easy for me to, to resort back to thinking that it's all about me and it's yeah. all up to me. 
I can't remember where I read it. I think actually it was not, I didn't read it. I was participating in a session with a leadership professor that I really respect. And we had this conversation about the importance in leadership going forward to have the ability to hold opposites, to hold opposites where on one hand, for example, there's many opposites, but on one hand, you want to drive forward aggressively, but on the other hand, you have to be calm and patient and kind of celebrate the silent moments and, and allow for the silent moments of thought and reflection, example of holding opposites. And what you've described there is to me, strikes me as a little bit of holding opposites. It's not all about me and it's not all up to me. And the opposites there are not actually the two phrases for me. It's not all about me in itself has this idea that when things are happening around me, I'm not the center of the universe, but also when things are not working, it's not all on my shoulders. And then the other part is, it's not all up to me, it means that I have a responsibility to make it about growing other people. And I also need other people to execute what I need to do. So it's really neat. In fact, there's like four really cool themes that are drawing out of that for me. And I think I need to reflect on it a bit more, but Thank you for sharing that. That's really simple and deep and powerful at the same time. Well, you know, what's interesting too, I, as you were talking about the juxtaposition of two seemingly different things, that is actually a core capability of organizations that are excellent at disruption. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of great authors that are talking about those things, but it is essentially this understanding that you know, if it's your business model, you would say at the same time, I have to say, this is how I'm going to make money today. Mm but this is how I will make money tomorrow. And they're different. And Mm. the organization's ability to simultaneously hold and entertain both of those things successfully is exactly what's required for effectiveness and disruption. There's actually a phenomenal book by an author named Safi Bacall called Mm. Loon Shots. Mm. And he goes through history. It's a little bit like good to great that Jim Collins did, except for it's in major disruptions in history. And he really talks about how organizations effectively do that. And it's such a such an incredible discipline, but I completely agree with you. That's what's required. The title of the book was Moonshot? It's called Loon Shots. Loon Shot. Okay. With L-O-O-N, Loon Shots. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. But you know, one of the examples he talks about is how the first technological war was actually World War II, hmm. uh, because the forces that we were working against, the Nazis and, and the... Um, Japanese empire at that time were more technologically advanced than the U.S. Army. Mm. And the generals in the U.S. Army wanted to go off and fight World War II like we fought World War I. If it weren't for the fact that the U.S. government and the military figured out how to simultaneously fight a war operationally like they had done before with the experience of the generals, but also learn how to be a technologically different organization that would introduce radar and jet aircraft and precision bomb sites, and a lot of other technological advances, including the nuclear atomic bombs that we developed, the outcome of the war would have been different. So mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, wow. So look, we, we talked about your childhood. I do want to talk about your career a little bit. And we do bounce around in this podcast. I take great pride in the bouncing around. I experience. love to bounce. That's great. <laughs> so looking at the dates on your LinkedIn profile, I think our career timings were very similar. I think we graduated from high school and university around the same time. 
I entered the retail automotive kind of gas station industry. You also entered in the automotive industry. I think I saw you were in the tire business. So you you entered. So what drew you to the automotive industry when you came out of university? You know, it's interesting. I was probably drawn to it at an early age because my father was very, he just loved cars. Hmm. And so one of the simple things we would do after dinner was, this is my appreciation for things I didn't understand, but he would say, let's go look at cars. And one of the most embarrassing things for me at that time was that we'd be out on these car lots, Shaquille, and the car salesman would come up and he'd want to sell us a car. My dad would be like, oh, we're just looking for cars out here. And this is my boy. He's in high school. He wants to be in the car business one day. And he'd be telling these stories. I'd be so embarrassed about it. Like, dad, this guy doesn't care what any of this, he just wants to sell us a car. But upon reflection, one of the things that I've come to understand is that my dad grew up in a, a household in a generation where the fathers did not tell their sons they loved them or they were proud of them. They just right. said, get going. Yeah. And so for him, I categorize him. He was the first generation of men who could tell their sons they loved them. He just didn't mm-hmm. know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So that was his way of doing it. So there's always been a place in my heart that very much appreciated the courage that he had to do that. And so that tied closely to the automotive industry. Of course, I love cars too. And when you're 18 years old, you think, well, if I love cars, the best thing to do is be in the car business. Mm -hmm. And so there I set off on my education. Probably the very first and best education I had actually was to go sell cars. Hmm. And I thought, well, I know a lot about cars. I'll do a fantastic job uh, of selling cars. And as it turned out, I'll never forget the very first product test I had. I was selling Lincoln Mercury's in South Atlanta. We took a product test, Shaquille, and I was the top scoring person. And I looked down the list at the lowest scoring and it happened to be juxtaposed against the sales numbers. Uh And it turned out that the person that scored lowest on the test was the highest performing salesperson. And it worked inverse. I was the lowest performing salesperson, but I knew the most about the product. That was the first point where I said, okay, big learning. Whatever you're selling, whatever you're a part of in business, it's not about the product. It's about the people that use it. Get to know them. That's more important than the product. Wow. Wow. That is such a powerful insight. And what an interesting way to to experience it and make the connection. And back to, it's not about you, right? It's not about you. It's not about the product you sell. It's not about the company you represent. It's about who you're engaging with, who you're supporting, who you're trying to create value for. Wow, that is really a powerful moment. Who designed that test and was that their intention? Well, it's a great question. You know, it was designed by somebody at Ford Motor Company that was trying to help make sure that the salespeople knew the products. And at that (laughs) time, I thought, surely, and it just happened that I was able to see the the test results stacked up against the sales results and the the obvious inversion of it was, it's not about the product, it's about the people. And it's about the other people. It's not about you, David, it's about those people. And then I realized, boy, I've got a lot to learn here, but I just became incredibly fascinated with the engagement of people in transportation. So that love of cars turned into a love of people and an opportunity to do things. And as 
I continued in that career. I ended up in service businesses and was a part of the service side of the industry for a while. And in 1998, I got a call from a friend who'd worked for another company. They said, hey, this really interesting opportunity is coming up. I don't know if you've heard of the internet, but this company (laughs) wants to take and put all the cars that are for sale in the United States on the internet so that people can see them. And that's what the business is going to look like. And I thought, I don't know a whole lot about the internet, but it sounds pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And I've heard good things about Cox as a company. So let's go try this thing. And Mm -hmm. that was the birth and foundation of a company that still in existence today, which is the auto trader business. Okay. Uh, So being the first salesperson for that and being at the genesis of the internet as a part of the automotive industry was just super exciting. And probably like we do often, we go back and try to recreate that later in our career. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting, auto trader. So I did see that in your your, uh, LinkedIn profile. I think it's a different auto trader in the US than it is in Canada. But one of the things that my listeners know and you know is that I'm a partner with the Summit Group. And so much is firing because of the perspective that I come from the Summit Group, which is it's all about not just even the customer, it's all about their customer and understanding what matters to their customer and working backwards. Sounds like you resonate with that. You've obviously worked with the Summit Group, so you brought those beliefs already to the relationship working with the summer group. But I worked with Trader in Canada 10 years ago, and I was working with Trader at an interesting time. And I would love to get your commentary on that from your perspective. The auto trader sales reps that was in the business of advertising car sales for used car dealerships primarily, where the salespeople were going out, essentially managing relationships with the auto dealers, the used car dealers, taking photographs, getting the information to produce it into a magazine, and then eventually on the internet. And there was a huge transition in the way customers were buying. What I realize now is that you were participating in that in a different market, putting all the cars on the internet, but it was much more than just putting all the cars on the internet, right? There was a lot of business transformation, buyer transformation that was going on alongside. So what more was there to the story besides just putting the cars on the internet? What else was changing in the industry? Well, you know, it's so fascinating to talk about how the disruptive events occur, because if you look back over the continuum of just the media side of advertising, the automotive industry, there are disruptive events that would have occurred. 2000 was one where the bubble burst and Mm -hmm. internet company valuations cratered. The second was 2008 where we had the global crisis and recession. Mm -hmm. And then there were smaller versions of that through the 2010s and then our latest one with COVID. And through each of those changes, what was evident is that the world is going to be in a position where the businesses that are succeeding and it will demand efficiency. Mm. And you will be building opportunities and relationships for that efficiency to be put to the test. Mm. So in 2000, when many businesses began to struggle, ours was able to be resilient. So what it really did is it called out many competitors that had all sorts of different business models. So it eliminated confusion for the retailers that were out there. But it wasn't until 2008 until it really dramatically took off. And that was because you had a couple of things that happened simultaneously. One is 
that the newspaper business took the greatest shot that it ever could have taken, maybe a final blow in a lot of ways. And although there are still print newspapers out there, many of them successful, dramatic consolidation, even within Cox, you know, it was dramatic at the time. But the internet companies that were doing automotive advertising and especially good at it, were able to provide a more efficient, cost-effective way to reach more people. And consumers did the same thing. So it was really an explosion of internet advertising, classified advertising, the automotive industry in 2008 because of that, Shaquille. Mm. So we see that as you go through 2010, you saw internet become something of an intelligence tool Mm. where the data that we extracted from consumers was able to be used to help create more precision in pricing Mm. and in inventory management and all these things. And really the latest innovation we've seen is that because of COVID with many retailers shut down, not just in the US, but but really around the globe, is that e-commerce and digital buying tools have become prevalent. Mm. And that has helped many retailers understand that they can actually sell the same number of cars with a lot fewer people. Mm. And while that's challenging from an employment standpoint, it is more efficient for them to do it. So it goes back to this notion that in disruption, there is a tremendous amount of efficiency that is possible and that they are disrupting the events in the economy and the environment that give the opportunity for those to present themselves. Mm. Wow, very cool. So now we're touching on a little bit about the, the Cox, the business, but what I'm hearing uh, from piecing together parts of the conversation so far, you use the word mobility, you talked about media, talked about software, we've talked about the operation running a dealership, and we've talked about it's not about you, it's about the customer, the buyer. How does that all come together? So I see a convergence of software and technology, understanding of the car buying experience, media and advertising, and it's all coming together now. How would you articulate, two questions, the change in the automotive buying experience over the span of your career in the industry and maybe a little bit of prediction on where do you think it's going? So the, the first question, the easy one, the observation, looking back, what, what have you seen? Well, it's really interesting. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the automotive industry, there's so many things that come back around. Really the genesis of the automotive industry was back in 1903. Mm. And there's a, a fascinating story about Henry Ford, because the the Ford Motor Company that's in existence today is actually the third one that Mm. Henry Ford started. Oh, It wasn't the first one. The product was the same every time, but the third company is the only one that made it. And the reason it made it is that he actually hired a gentleman named um, Henry Cousins. Mm. And Henry was the one that went out and said, how do we actually create a sales network for these? And so he first went to the natural place that you would think you could sell cars would be a horse and carriage, a buggy shop. Hmm. But it turned out that they didn't want any part of it because they saw it as competitive. So Hmm. to the next best place, which were bicycle shops, they Hmm. didn't see it as competitive. They saw it as additive Hmm. to transportation, not competition with the bicycle. And they also had some of the mechanical ability to actually work on the cars, assemble them and make them go. And that was how the foundation of it began. So the incumbent which is the horse and buggy rejected the opportunity for cars and handed it to somebody else. Interesting. If you fast forward then to call it 
the 1990s, car sales was not dramatically different. There were a little bit of technology tools that came in, and but it was all about negotiation skills. It was about withholding information, keeping information that was helpful to the seller, but not to the buyer, maximizing profit per vehicle, and creating massive commissions for the salespeople. That's not bad. That's a little bit of how it was set up as the manufacturers had a lot of retailers that were out there and a lot of points. From 1998 forward, though, it has become very customer centric. Mm. And so that has always been the march to do what is more and more customer centric, as well as large organizations creating economy of scale. So the big changes that are happening now are really in creating efficiency that's more customer centric. Mm. How do you create a buying process that benefits the consumer? And so very much in the the mindset of the third box thinking mindset, Mm. we approach our customers to help them understand their customers, Mm. our customer's customer. And so that is incredibly helpful when you're thinking about helping anyone who's in the transportation industry think about who their customer is and what they want and how that's different. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that are changing from really a lack of interest from teenagers today to drive to alternatives they've never had before to different technology apparatus from 1990 to 2010, there were maybe one or two new car companies. Tesla was one of them late late in that generation. Since 2010 to now, there have been more than 20 new car companies come up. Hmm. And these companies now are not seen as necessarily car companies, they're seen as technology companies. So the valuations that are associated with them are just astronomical. Hmm. And it's really changed how we view it. But I think the one thing that is really fascinating just to kind of wrap that up is if you look globally at the automotive industry, it's maybe $3 trillion. Okay. But if you look at the global marketplace for how people get around outside of like air transportation, it's about $10 trillion. Wow. So the real opportunity that is the historic opportunity is for an industry like the automotive industry to actually not miss the chance to become the disruptor, to self-disrupt. Mm. And that is relatively unprecedented. And probably if you're thinking about self-disruption, you probably, a lot of people would not have bet on the automotive industry to be the ones to do it, but I think yeah. they will. That was a fascinating story. And there's so many lessons to draw from, and I don't think we have the time or mental capacity to draw them all together. <laughs> but you know, the first thing that struck me was when you talked about the choice that leaders of the horse and buggy company made to choose to ignore what they saw as competition and the bicycle shops chose to embrace it. Back to really powerful questions. I think that the buggy manufacturers missed the question that was, how is the world of people movement changing? That's right. And how can we evolve to be part of the way moving people changes? Now, if they had just asked themselves that question, they would have got to a very different outcome. And it reminds me, I just had a conversation of, uh, several weeks ago with uh, a person that used to work for a competitor to Blockbuster Video, but Rogers Video. It was a video rental business. And he said that the people in their company were asking the wrong questions. They weren't asking the questions as how is consumption of entertainment changing? 
They were focused on how do we protect our core business operation of renting videos. So back to powerful questions is such an important thing. So now like we're fast forwarding and we're looking into the future and thinking through how is the business of moving people changing? And it'll be very interesting to watch and see how people address that question. Yeah, I think so. And there's so much I think that will play out even if the pandemic does end up coming to, you know, an effective conclusion, maybe this spring and it plays out in limited ways throughout the rest of 2021, there still will be things that will unfold that are unexpected. Mm -hmm. And so some of the macro things that we are seeing now is less fleets transporting people and more fleets transporting goods. Mm. The people are staying put Mm -hmm. and they're bringing these things to them. Mm. So that definitely changes the nature of what moving things around looks like. You also will see autonomous continue to move, but there's still a lot of unknowns in terms of regulation and mm-hmm. you know, technology development and consumer adoption and embracing these things. Mm-hmm. But probably one of the areas that we'll see across the, the board, not just in transportation, but we'll see transaction costs come down mm-hmm. as um, you know, we create alternative models for transportation where you can subscribe to a car. You don't have to buy it. You can do short-term leases. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do a lot of different ways of using transportation without having to own transportation mm-hmm. and where blockchain comes in and probably ultimately creates extremely rapid transaction capability if you do want to own something. Those are all going to be really interesting paradigms to come out. We're exploring aerial is a real thing. Will people be able to not have to build a a road somewhere or build a garage? They'll build a a hangar or a Hmm. launch pad for something to come and land at their place. It's hard hard to imagine. Yeah, but it's all possible. You touched on this idea of companies learning how to self disrupt. If you say that really fast, it sounds like how to how companies should self destruct. It's not too far from the same idea, right? How do you, you said whole two opposites early on. How do you continue to figure out how to make money today, but know how you're going to make money tomorrow? So can we talk a little bit about what does it look like to lead teams, lead organizations that embrace the ability to self-disrupt? Have you been thinking about that at all? We've been thinking about it quite a bit, and I would say that uh, not only have been thinking, putting into practice some of the things that we know and understand. When we look back over the history of media, it's really fascinating. You know, back in the early 1900s, you had radio, you had newspaper hmm. that was in place, and then you had radio that came in, and radio took on a new form of communication and entertainment. And in the 40s and early 50s, you had television come in, and it created a new space with media. And then in the late 60s, early 70s, you had the kind of fragmentation of television with cable. Mm -hmm. And then in the 90s, you had internet come in. And all of these things have sort of carved out new ways of using the existing media and in some ways have cannibalized the previous media. But Mm -hmm. what we've learned and understood is that the mode that our own organization has worked in and what we've taught a lot of other companies is that you have to separate the operation from the innovation. Mm. And so they're connected, but you can't keep them too close together because one will kill the other. Generally operations kills 
the innovation hmm. part of it. So keeping those things somewhat separate is helpful. For instance, there was a point in time where our own organization owned both the Trader Publishing organization and owned the Auto Trader Digital. And hmm. we competed quite a bit, hmm. even though we're owned by the same company, we're some vicious hmm. competitors against each hmm. other. But that actually made both companies better because, you know, without the competition that we needed to have as an online organization, we wouldn't have been able to figure out the value proposition and be able to challenge the real mindsets and develop mm-hmm. value. And the existence of the the other media, the paper media for a while, had to be become more effective and really understand what it did as well. So all of these things have a place, but keeping the innovation, the operation separate is probably one of the fundamental principles. Hmm, interesting. That's one incredible guiding principle, keeping the operations and innovation. I think there's a great book called Lean Startup that speaks to some of that about the idea of how do you enable parts of the organization to be let loose, free, innovative, and creative um, while part of the business runs. It's kind of like the making money in the present and figuring out how to make money in the future, but keeping them apart a little bit so that one doesn't encroach on the other. That's pretty cool. I was reading a book, it was years ago now, called Crisis and Renewal by David Hurst. Uh, I was reading it in business school, so that's, that was a while ago. And they compared the idea of a forest fire as being a crisis, but how the period after the fire spurned a renewal, and renewal in the form of soil being turned over, nutrients being added to the soil, new insects coming out from under the wood they had been living under and new plants growing. And it actually turned into renewal, like growth. And so the question he poses in the book is how as business leaders can you be set up to, yes, take advantage of crisis when it happens to you, but how do you actually stimulate crisis so that you can grow in control and in a controlled way. I don't think the word disruption existed back then when that book was written, but it's certainly that's what he was talking about. Do you have any thoughts, any stories and experiences, even a small anecdote of how you've seen the crisis and the creativity kind of show itself in your team, in your organization? There's a few things that I would say that I think either nobody's an expert in this or everybody is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think it's hard. It's helpful to share share experiences and it's probably not helpful to be too prescriptive on what all this stuff looks like. But there's a few things that I've learned that I've put into practice that either align to my leadership style or the culture of our organization that help us Mm -hmm. be successful. But one of the things specific to what you were talking about is a notion from the book Essentialism by Greg McCown. And I love this book because he just really talks about focusing on what's important and making brutal decisions Hmm. on protecting those things. I have five different quotes that I've heard that changed my mind immediately. You know, very rarely do you hear something, but these are so powerful. And what Greg said in this is that the ability to choose can never be lost. It can only be forgotten. Hmm. And what I believe happens in those moments after crisis is that we do go reevaluate our opportunity to make decisions that we'd forgotten we could make. Yeah. So for me, for us, I think it is always helpful to think, well, we could do that, or we could decide that that's not what we want to do, or we could decide to try to do this. And so we really open our aperture of what could be done and what is Mm -hmm. possible. 
and think more creatively and more broadly than we would have before. So I really believe that that notion of not just surviving the crisis, but also capitalizing on it afterward is really important. Yeah, I think, and that's really something we're all doing, whether it's for our own lives, but also for our families and our businesses and our communities and the world. And I really am impressed by the way most large organizations and individual people are uh, embracing that opportunity in this time. Certainly there are people going through tremendous difficulty, illness and loss, and I do not want to downplay that. But there are, I feel, enough people that are looking for how can we get better because of this. And that's really going to be powerful for all of us and our children going forward. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very hopeful that's the case, too, that this is one of those forces that will unite us, not divide us. Yeah. David, you know, when we first met, when we did that panel months ago, we were talking about customer co-creation and creating value with our customers. One of the things that I always believe deeply, and it sounds like you believe it as well, is that when a company is acting as a supplier or servicing another company, there's a relationship there that if you can spark the right level of collaboration, you can accomplish incredible things. And there's lots of examples in the world where that works. But I've found that the right, perfect magic of collaboration is more rare than is more rare than I wish it was. And wanted to get your perspective on what are the conditions that have to exist for two parties, two organizations, two people to come together to spark creativity during a time of disruption. I think I have to say that you are right. It seems in principle that it should be far easier than it actually is in practice. Yeah. And I believe that is largely because as a society, we're struggling to maintain the real relationships. Mm. We have proxies now for communication and collaboration that don't look anything as authentic, like as authentic as they were before. And, and even mm. in COVID, it's more challenging because things are virtual. And so the ability to understand what somebody else is thinking or doing is much more difficult through a video screen. So I think that that has become more challenging, but there is this notion that is kind of foundational. Zig Ziglar said, you can have anything you want in life if you'll just help enough other people get what they want first. Hmm. And it's very scary to put somebody else's needs first and to think about what collaboration could look like, and then to figure out how to turn that into a business model. But, you know, without going into the extreme specifics, we've seen that the return on the investments for collaboration and partnership have been the most profitable and the most extraordinary in our own business. Hmm. And so if you try it, you'll see that there's an opportunity. It doesn't always work perfectly. And there can be things that are frightening that happen in the middle of it. But I don't think there actually is another way. Things move too fast for us to just believe that we're going to be able to do it all ourselves. It's interesting. What I've heard in what you just said is undertones of that leadership principle of yours, which is it's not all about me. And the key to collaboration and working creatively with others is actually to invest in their success and actually not initially, at least initially, worry on what do you get out of this? Yeah. And I think the other thing that is happening too, and I find this 
um, in, our, in myself and our own organization is that at the same time, the things that we believe are possible are bigger and greater than ever. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability to transcend your financial situation or your job or role or people who are younger are becoming wealthier and more powerful. It seems like anything is possible. But what is not changing is the fact that we have to be able to endure challenge and struggle. Hmm. And so I think about the fact that in our own organization, the mantra we have is really that Simon Sinek said Hmm. this. He said, innovation is not born of the dream. It's born Hmm. of the struggle. Hmm. And so actually preparing our organization, preparing us individually to struggle and have challenges Hmm. is the current focus. In fact, in our priorities for my organization, this year, we have a fourth priority that's focused on team health and wellness and mm. success mm. in this environment. And we're finding an unbelievable amount of support and interest in how do we manage and become more effective in this time? How do we struggle well? Mm. How do we struggle well? That's a good one. If we ever get back to the world of having large gatherings and weddings, one of the things I tend to be drawn on in my family is being the MC of many of our, my relatives' weddings. And so I always struggle to find the perfect quote. I'm going to call you next time. I got to write a speech. <laughs> I you have guys, a list of these things. <laughs> uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I, you know, we both have a really great relationship with a gentleman, Phil Sterland. And I've always believed he is one of the most well-read people Phil will be listening to this, I'm sure. And I'll I tell, I'll just, you. let me just say that I think I've met Phil's match here. Uh, (laughs) Your ability to draw insights from the books you've read. And for those of you listening, you don't know this, but behind David is a big bookshelf. And I actually, for the first time, believe that I'm talking to somebody that's actually read all the books on that bookshelf. So that's really incredible. That is true. (laughs) David, let's wrap up this conversation with this one question is what advice do you have for leaders as they're facing the next several years? What's, you know, one thing that you would love to share with them to think about as they're planning how to lead this week? I'll share something that I would say is something that I know and understand better now, but I have not fully understood how to implement. And so I say this in a way to to maybe appeal to the broader audience of leaders to work together as a community to help do these things well. And it's this idea. Dr. Steve Robbins is a, an author. He wrote the book, What If? And he's a uh, neuropsychologist. And so he's very astute in terms of how people work together. And, and what he says is this, that, that there's a foundational need that all people have. That need is to belong to a tribe and to be valued by a tribe. Mm. In other words, when we think about the organizations we work for, the teams we're a part of, the culture that we have, the family that we're a part of, we need to understand that we belong to that tribe and that that tribe finds value in us. Hmm. And so as a leader, what I'm working overtime to do is to make sure that my team knows that they're a part of something and that they're valued by it. Hmm. And so finding a way to communicate that is important. What that allows for is the ability to give really direct feedback that is real in the moment, very specific and can help improve performance and feedback. So the more specifically somebody knows and understands are part of the tribe and that they're valued by it, the more specific your feedback can be and the more helpful you can be at time and the less hesitant you will be to speak your mind about what needs to have happened. I think not only as a business, 
but as a business community and citizens of this planet, the more that we can figure out how to do that and create that, the more effective we're going to be at creating a better world for all of us. Oh, that's fantastic. What a great way to finish this conversation. David, thank you so much for your time. That was an intellectually packed and very enjoyable hour that I'm very grateful to have had. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, wisdom, and exploring with me. It's a pleasure, Shaquille. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. And I look forward to talking again soon. Yeah, have a great day. This is definitely one of those episodes you will want to listen to again. I'm so fortunate to get to meet incredible people and leaders in my work. There is so much wisdom in David's words, it's really hard to pull out just a few takeaways. But here it goes. David talked about the mentor early in his career around 2003 that asked him the question, what would he regret most not accomplishing if he died tomorrow? David did not like his answer to that question. So he worked to rewire his life and his priorities. So once again, it validates for me the transformation available to all of us that can be unleashed with a powerful question. He talked about how he formed his two leadership principles. Gosh, so simple, but so powerful. Number one, it's not all about you. And two, it's not all up to you. Gosh, those are really, really powerful words. Simple and uh, really impactful. He shared with us the story about how he first learned that systems were set up to reward people and organizations to know the product, to know their company. But instead, success really goes to people over the long term who spend more time getting to know their customer and their customer's customer than they do spending time learning about their own product. He learned that early in his career, and it's something I believe very deeply and uh, incredible how he shared that story. I loved his final comment, make your team feel like they are part of something and that they are valued members of that something. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, or share it. I want to say thank you to one of my favorite bands, Late Night Conversations, for sharing their song Chaos with me and letting me use it in this episode. You can learn more about them on Instagram at LNC Connected. And here's more of their song Chaos to take you out. i